This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always, by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? It's okay. I I guess it's too late to ask you to be my Valentine, Leslie. Oh, well, I was your Valentine anyway, Dan. (laughs) I choo-choo choose you, et cetera. Anyway, Me fail English, that's impossible. That's got nothing to do with Valentine's Day. And anyway, no, but it's a Simpsons reference. It, I understand. Anyway, we're all uh, we're all past Valentine's Day and on to President's Day anyway. So three cheers for James Garfield. Who's your favorite president, Leslie? Huh. <laughs> I've not thought of that. I was going to be snarky and name like a network president, but then it took me a minute to realize that most networks don't have individual presidents anymore. So anyway, staying on brand. What do you say we get down to business and you lead us off with the week's top headlines? Number one. Up first, Ryan Seacrest is leaving ABC's Live, I guess, with, sure. Mark, with Mark Consuelos joining his wife, Kelly Ripa, as her new co-host. Leslie, will this have a large impact on your morning television viewing? Yes. Will this have a positive or negative uh, impact on your morning television viewing? Yes. (laughs) Are you a Michael Strahan gal? (laughs) I'm not a morning person, so I don't really watch morning TV. So I I get my news like everybody else on Twitter. That is that is sad, but consistently true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in other news that, uh, honestly, that Susan Rovner teased during our epic 200th episode interview with her, Poker Face officially renewed for season two on Peacock. Dan, I have finished all of my screeners for Poker Face for the whole season. Damn good television. I have not. I have still only watched the six that we were sent uh, to start the season, which means that there's now one new episode out that the masses have been enjoying that I haven't watched yet, which means probably this weekend I will have to... Uh, Catch up and get ahead on Poker Face. Yep. Damn good. In casting news, Amber Ruffin will star in the NBC comedy pilot Non-Evil Twin. It's unclear currently what that will mean regarding her late night show, her presence with Seth Meyers, etc., because this is just a comedy pilot. So something they'll have to decide if they choose to pick it up. In Departures, Tay Diggs, everyone's favorite Twitter follow, but mine, because he doesn't follow me anymore on Twitter. He, he has followed a ton of people. He does, but he he followed a bunch of people, unfollowed a bunch of people, and uh, and and I was a casualty because I never followed him back. I, I totally understand. Tough but fair, Tay Diggs. Uh, 
<laughs> anyway, spoiler alert for those of you who pay very close attention. He has uh, been, let's just say, eased off of uh, the CW's All-American. I don't feel like spoiling anything more for the kids, uh, which had been previously renewed for next season on the currently revamping, rebranding, whatever it is, version of the CW. Should we, should we start? When, like, when do we start coming up with ideas for what Nexstar can call the CW instead of C is in CBS and W is in Warner Brothers? I think they can call it whatever they want. It's just going to be consistently sad if they keep calling it the CW and we have to look at what it's becoming as opposed to what it once was. We could probably just call it Pop TV, right? Hi. If they, if that's the direction they want to go. Also, maybe eventually, once they actually settle into all of their development and whatever, there will be pleasantly surprising things that will pop up on the CW. They have I mean, development? I yeah. don't know for sure. I'm just no, assuming. No, they haven't picked up a single pilot, and here we are mid-February. Well, but they've been doing other things. There have been new people going into new jobs, so at some point, they will have to plant their flag in the thing that it is that they're going to be doing. and Acquisitions. Yeah, if that's if that's what it is. That's not because they're not making TV shows. They're maybe going to renew a couple more. Maybe. Well, in that case, then I return to my initial supposition about feeling sad when I look at what the CW is versus what it was. But I continue to believe. Who knows? Maybe they'll start embarking on bold new programming frontiers. Yeah, or Trump back golf. Sure. I, I hope I hope less of the latter, but I'll talk more about uh, the live tour when we get to the critics corner. That's a little Ooh, that's a little tease. teaser indeed. Well, rounding up headlines, HBO Max has given a formal series order to Duster, the crime drama from executive producer J.J. Abrams that has lost alum Josh Holloway set to star. This is the first major series pickup after Warner Brothers Discovery sank J.J.'s Justice League Dark Plan as well as his HBO original series, Demimond, plus the, after they canceled Westworld, this is honestly the very first show to stem from, to actually get the series green light from the $250 million content partnership that JJ signed with what was then Warner Media. So they've developed a lot, spent a lot of money, written a lot of that off for tax write-offs, and now they're actually going to make a show. Very I think peculiar. what is this? Four years into the into I think what my memory serves a five year deal so congratulations you're getting a one show for all of this money that you've invested yeah JJ Abrams plus Josh Holloway ought to be interesting oh absolutely something to be curious about if nothing else completely but yeah that's a lot of money to sink into one producing partnership and know that he's working on things for other studios so also by the way. Uh, ESPN announced that they were making a Yankees docuseries this week from executive producer J.J. Abrams. I just don't understand that. Um, it's it's the strange thing wherein ESPN does the same documentary over and over again at different lengths. Like, they they just did the Derek that Jeter ridiculous run. self-serving Derek Jeter documentary. Maybe take time off from the Yankees and eight to 10 episode documentary series, unless you just want us to start thinking you uh, thinking of you as the national version of the S network. 
Uh, just there are there are other franchises beyond the Yankees. There are other franchises beyond the Lakers and the amount of fatigue that's going to set in because it's not like they're not going to get the exact same people to come and talk about the Yankees glory and Yankees greatness and all of that. And it's not even like, you know, look, everyone knows I'm a, a Red Sox and Dodgers fan, whatever. And so I'm not going to be excited about a Yankees series. But there's a, a Yogi Berra documentary that's coming out in theaters and will probably make its way somewhere on television at some point, but it's coming out in May in a couple theaters. And I thought that was really good. So it's not like I can't like a good series that's about the Yankees. Just the Derek Jeter one wasn't that. And it definitely soured me on whatever it would be. I honestly expected you to put that higher up in headlines so that it would be an excuse to talk about pitchers and catchers. But you didn't. So too late. Uh, circling back in headlines to something that we touched on last week because we touched on Hugh Laurie signing on to be in the third season of Tehran on Apple. Yes, indeed. HBO announced this week that Avenue 5 has been canceled after two seasons. So there you go. Spoiler alert. For, no one ever. I'm yeah. just going to say for, who? for a show that for already what? ended. That well, also, I mean, we knew the show was canceled. Like we absolutely knew it. It just took HBO however many months to actually confirm news that everyone knew to be true. Welcome to TV reporting in 2023. I suppose. And wrapping up headlines with some development news, Fox is readying a female-driven reboot of Starsky and Hutch as part of its script-to-series development model. So what does script-to-series mean? Well, it's exactly what it sounds like. And basically, this is Fox's one of two different ways that Fox plans on developing live-action content going forward. The other way is not the traditional pilot process. So if you look at my pilot season grid that posted, I think it was last week, no orders at Fox, no orders at the CW. Very different times that we're living in, Dan. The times, they are a-changin'. Speaking of things a-changin', up second. Number two. Paramount Plus is raising subscription prices following the same path as rivals Disney, Netflix, and Warner Brothers Discovery. And... There were a bunch of other changes this week that we've kind of teased because I feel like we've been talking about Showtime and Paramount Plus basically every week. And a lot of what we've been talking about has been speculating about how things would shake out, executively speaking. So this week we got some answers on that and on what the overall blob of a company is going to look like. Leslie, break it down. Yeah, the key word is blob at this point. So you're right. You know, we started talking about Showtime back in episode 200 when they when Paramount Global announced that it was rebranding Showtime as Paramount Plus with Showtime, both for the premium streaming tier as well as the linear network. Great punchline. Stay tuned for our showrunner interview with Stephen Falk, who's joining us this week to talk about an Apple show, but he has a great dig at Showtime in that. That's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, so we knew about the rebranding that started in, we talked about that in episode 200. Then last week we talked about their big franchise strategy with multiple spinoffs of Dexter and Billions, kind of mirroring what their success has been with Yellowstone and that track record with multiple spinoffs and all of them working and getting renewed and et cetera. This week, all of the future of how the network is really going to look under the hood, it has come into focus. So the big piece here is we've got layoffs and there's a lot of them. What we know so far, the headcount is about 120 people affected. 
This includes co-president Jana Winograde. She was pushed out among, as well as the C, the the COO and the CFO. It, it, it's basically, Showtime does not look like it used to. And instead, Chris McCarthy, who oversees Showtime now, as well as the rest of Paramount Global's linear networks, has instead installed his MTV Studios regime, which is led by an unscripted vet who started back with him during his days running VH1, Nina Diaz, and then the head of scripted, Keith Cox. And if, you know, we've talked about Keith Cox before on the show. He's been a rising star at Viacom. He used to be the president of TV Land and developed Darren Starr's Younger. Well, well, keep that in your memory banks for now because that'll come back into play in a minute or two. But... So yeah, so what we do know is that that fellow co-president, Gary Levine, who had been with Showtime for more than 20 years overseeing every major franchise, including Dexter for the network, has shifted from his role as co-president to an advisory role with McCarthy's new structure. So basically what you're seeing here is instead of functioning as one single studio, MTV Studios, who were behind Younger and there are a couple and Emily in Paris, Instead, now they're going to be running Showtime. Meanwhile, Paramount Global still has CBS Studios and Paramount TV Studios. Those are run by David Staff and Nicole Clemens, respectively. So now you've got Nina and Keith who are overseeing all of Showtime and the content cuts continue. So this week we learned that the Ripley TV series starring Fleabag's Andrew Scott, as I previously teased on this show, is indeed leaving Showtime. Netflix has picked that up and they kind of ultimately wound up trading shows here because Chris McCarthy also rescued the Neil Patrick Harris comedy Uncoupled after Netflix canceled the show. So Showtime is adding a comedy starring Neil Patrick Harris as a newly single uh, gay dude. And now before you wonder why Showtime would bail on premium content like Ripley and the Three Women's series starring Shailene Woodley, which I reported went to stars, first of all, those are massively expensive shows. McCarthy doesn't think that they're going to work on the network. So instead, he sold them off, take the tax write-off, and instead he's bringing in Uncoupled. So before you wonder why, take a look for a second at who owns that show. It was that Uncoupled is produced by MTV Studios. And guess what? The MTV Studios people now control Showtime and they have a network to put this show that Netflix outright rejected. So what's more important, too, is the series was created by Darren Starr, who ranks as one of Paramount's most important showrunners. And as I noted at the beginning of this segment, has deep ties with Keith Cox because he created Younger for TV Land when... Keith Cox was basically an exec that no one in town knew because he was overseeing a network that no one knew about called TV Land, which had some of these really fun originals paired up with a bunch of old syndicated repeats. So now TV Land, of course, like every almost every other Paramount linear cable network is out of scripted. And instead, now they're pushing all this stuff at, at, into Showtime and into Paramount Plus. Who knows? Uncoupled could work on, on Paramount Plus could work on Showtime? I have no idea. It's a great, great question to see what will become of their originals because we know, obviously, that they're knee-deep in the franchise commitment with multiple Dexter and Billions offshoots in the works. And sources say that that they're looking at, at doing the same with, with some of their other proven hits, including The Shy. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on here. And then when you look elsewhere, as you said in the top of the segment here, 
Paramount Plus is raising prices. So Paramount Plus with Showtime, which of course is the premium tier, that's going to be raised in the third quarter from 10 bucks to 12. Then you've got the ad supported tier is going to increase from five to six bucks. Yeah. And, you know, and in the larger sense, when you look at, at what all of the Showtime tinkering and, and restructuring and all the layoffs and the content dumping has, Paramount Global, Bob Backish said today, excuse me, said Thursday during the company's fourth quarter earnings call that they expect to efficiently manage content spending and that the Showtime integration with Paramount Plus will result in, you ready for the big number, Dan? I am. $700 million in, in cost savings. Which, Not quite Warner Brothers discovery of north of three billion, but seven hundred million is uh, nothing to shake a stick at. Or whatever Disney is doing, there are there are a lot of very large numbers being thrown around. In yeah, such because things. everyone's realized, you know, since the since the Netflix stock t- hit the shitter last year, that hey, you know, this streaming business model where we where we spend like crazy, it's not a good one. <laughs> That's why everyone's launching an ad tier. That's why everyone's raising their their subscri- the subscription fees, and that's why everyone's cutting back on on content. You know, our colleagues over on the Heat Vision side of things, Boris Kitt and Aaron Couch, have a great look uh, that posted this week about how the content cutbacks are going to affect Marvel and Lucasfilm, and basically the TV output is going to take a hit. As as will everything, because everyone, you know, Bob Iger now wants to f- more effectively manage the costs on those shows. Does it make sense to push out five to ten Marvel shows and Marvel and Lucasfilm shows per year? The cost of those things is through the roof because they make these like they make a feature. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's cost effective, especially when you're on a, a platform that at, at you know that that previously didn't have ads and now they do so you have to find ways to monetize these shows so you either find increase what increase your ways of monetizing these shows and lowering the cost of them and then maybe you'll make some money on them i don't know (laughs) i liked all of the connections you were drawing between uh the various mtv things and the picked up shows and whatnot I, i think it helps if listeners imagine you as the human embodiment of the uh charlie conspiracy gif uh, from it's always sunny in Philadelphia, where you're you're posting at your vast conspiracy board with all of the yarn connecting various different uh, production companies and whatnot, and and basically going a little bit crazy uh, because heaven knows how could one not? Uh, wild and crazy times. Mostly, I'm happy that somebody is going to air the Ripley. Ripley series because I am a huge fan of the Patricia Highsmith books and several of the adaptations. So I would like that to be the case. I, I don't care at all about uncoupled getting picked up. On the other hand, I completely and totally understand on a business side, why it happened. Yeah. Uh, you're keeping one of your top creatives happy. The co- the production cost of that show can't be very, very much compared to what they were on three women or even on Ripley. But I'm, I am kind of surprised because Ripley does kind of fit with the overall Paramount Plus strategy. And, you know, in talking with a lot of sources sources there, it's like Paramount really wants a lot of the content that they already produce for Amazon. Jack Ryan, Reacher, these are those big, bold procedurals with one big character at the center. And here you, again, have something that's very, very similar in, in Ripley, right? Kind of a procedural, big, bold character, big IP and yet they chose to offload it. So I guess the tax write down is is better than what could have easily been a franchise or still could, I guess, for Netflix. Unless they're also concerned that the series fits somewhat into 
the kind of attempts to mine IP that no one necessarily wanted that the previous administration did. Like, I'm not necessarily saying this is the case, and I think that probably it's much easier to understand or justify the need for a new Tom Ripley drama than it is to understand the need for a new Man Who Fell From Earth or American Gigolo. But I can still imagine somebody in a room saying this is going to feel the same way to our audience. Like people are going to look and go, I half recognize what that is that they're attempting to do, but I don't necessarily know why I care. And it's too bad because, again, as I've said several times, some of those attempts to mine the IP were pretty decent. I'm referring to Chiwetel Ejiofor's performance in Man Who Fell From Earth and to some elements of Let the Right One In. And then some of them were just bad, like American Gigolo. But uh, yeah, that's that's sort of the only thing I can process in my head is that they is that someone felt as if this looked too much like the way the old administration was handling IP and decided it just wasn't worth it. I I would have no way of knowing, but because I haven't seen any of it and I would like to. So someday I would like to. <laughs> yeah. Up third this week. Number three. Super Bowl was a thing that happened. Kansas City Chiefs edged the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35 in what was really a great game until, well, let's be honest, the last two minutes. But Dan re lit up the suspended stage in red, revealing her second pregnancy in epic style. The Fox broadcast averaged 113.1 million viewers across all platforms, a slight 1% improvement from last year and a six-year high for the game and what is usually the biggest, the, the largest TV watching day of the year. And then following the Super Bowl, Next Level Chef pulled in nearly 16 million viewers. And Dan, there was a game, there was an epic halftime performance, and there were commercials. I'm going to turn to you. What did you think of, of the big game? And there was Puppy Bowl. Don't forget Puppy Bowl. I definitely got a, an email yesterday talking about how Puppy Bowl was the top non-sports program of the night, which was really confusing to me because I, I think of Puppy Bowl as being a sport. I, I don't understand why they're attempting to pretend it isn't. Uh, yeah, so the actual game itself, um, as, you, as you say, it was, a, it was a really good, really competitive game for much of its running time and then it suddenly became a let's go to replay let's do strange things let's just make a mess of a really good game last couple minutes uh, too bad because the game it should have been something resembling a classic and instead it was it, it was a close and competitive game which heaven knows you know we we both in our youth remembered years when the Super Bowl was always a route every single year and it was this horrible thing. And, you know, the past 20 years, it's much more frequently been actually a pretty good game, which is has been nice. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the the Rihanna halftime show was. It was not bare bones because it was fairly ambitious, those those floating suspended uh, platforms, they don't just do that themselves and there have been kind of cool behind the scenes footage videos that have gone up and shown how they did it. And, you know, impressive. On the other hand, we, we think of Super Bowl halftime shows as let's see how many different quadrants we can check, how many different guest stars we can bring in. Basically, we, we try to leave everybody with something to react to happily or unhappily. And this was a this was a 10-minute Rihanna performance. This was not in any way what we've become accustomed to in the let's see how many guest stars we can have out. Let's see how many uh, collaborators we can have come out. 
this was Rihanna going through her hits. And I, I thought she did a, a pretty entertaining job. I think if you expect it to be a grandiose spectacle, either like, say, for example, last year's halftime, where it was just one uh, hip-hop luminary after another popping up in different strange ways, uh, you know, collaborating in odd ways. It was it was one little micro-performance after another that maybe or maybe not added up to an overall spectacle. In this case, it was the spectacle was the was the macro performance. It was everything that was just Rihanna, no guests, no children's chorus, no different squadrons of dancers. It was an entire field full of dancers in their white tracksuits or whatever they were. And I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was entertaining for 10 minutes. I don't think it necessarily would have been a thing I would have wanted to watch for an hour. Whereas with the hip hop halftime, I was like, ooh, let's bring out more people. Let's let's do more and more. Uh, I think this was more cohesive. It was smoother in terms of its direction and transitions and a lot of things than what we've been used to over the years. And yeah, I thought I thought it was a decent enough halftime performance. It was definitely not a debacle. And I've seen some people try saying it was a debacle. I've also seen some people saying that because she wore red, it was satanic. So some people are just freaking crazy. Uh, there's some people just want to make a big deal out of absolutely everything. And, and speaking, but maybe some of them believe it. Maybe they don't. I mean, speaking as someone who tr who professionally makes a big deal frequently out of nothing, even I'm impressed by people attempting to say she wore red, therefore it was satanic, therefore it was an extension of whatever. Sam Smith did it, whatever thing where he wore red. and uh, The just, Grammys, yeah. Exactly. The Grammys. Uh, yeah, some, some crazy shit out there. I thought it was a fine halftime performance. It was, cert I, I would say it was right in the middle, is what I would say. I'd say of sort of the, the history of halftime performances. No one, I don't think, should feel that it was an embarrassing halftime performance. I think it was, there was a lot of really good professionally done stuff. On the other hand, in five or 10 years, will people be talking about this in the same way that people talk about the Prince halftime or, uh, you know, certain Beyonce halftime performances or whatever? No, I, I don't necessarily think they do. I don't think it moved the needle in that way. But again, it's one of those things where, People are always going to be frustrated and disappointed by the halftime show unless it is exactly the the genre and the artist and exactly the medley of exactly the hits that you wanted. People are going to complain. And so that's how it goes in the same way that people will always feel as if the commercials in any particular Super Bowl were not as good as the commercials back in the day when they loved their Super Bowl halftime commercials. I thought there were a few good commercials. I, I loved the dog food commercial uh, about the dog who grew up with the woman. And, you know, she was it was the woman's childhood dog. And then it was her her companion in youth. And then it was the dog that was with her daughter or son or whatever when when her kid was born. I thought that was emotional and sweet. Uh, there was the Amazon ad with the dog who messed up the house. So basically what I'm saying is any ad with dogs, I thought was a pretty good thing. Uh, normally, that's my feeling about monkeys, but this year we were short on monkeys for whatever reason. Hey, man, Crystal the monkey needed a minute to, you know, gotta take a year off. Can't risk overexposure. Also, you know, Crystal the monkey was so good in the Fablemans, uh, you just don't want to follow that up with a cheap cash grab commercial spot. So, 
totally fine with that. Um, I'm trying to think of, there were a lot of trailers there, you know, the, the flash trailer, which was designed to make you not want to be disgusted by Ezra Miller continuing to be front and center in that franchise. And enough people were jazzed enough to see Michael Keaton back in the bat suit that it seems to have done its job. I, I believe, I feel like your, your wife tweeted enthusiastically about it, but I could be, I could be misremembering. Uh, <laughs> I could just be assuming that that would be the kind of thing that Natalie would have been excited to, uh, to tweet about. Something but Batman? No. There were, <laughs> look, the, as, as Jesus and Mero would say, the band, the brand is strong. Uh, ah, God, why did Showtime? Well, actually Showtime didn't do away with that show. They broke up their partnership. So I hope they get back together again soon. Jesus and Mero. Anyway, I digress. Uh, there were other various trailers for movies that I just don't care about. You're, you're not going to make me go see another Transformers movie in the theaters. Uh, that's, that's just not going to happen. Uh, but it, uh, what else, what else was there on the commercial front? There were lots of things with lots of stars where I remember the clueless one with Alicia Silverstone. I remember and Elisa, how awkward. And Elisa Donovan. Everyone's got to remember that course, they got two people, not of just course. Alicia Silverstone. And then I do remember feeling really uncomfortable with the, with the John Travolta commercial. That one was sad, and it was yeah. and it was sad both because John Travolta's now done several Super Bowl commercials that were very bad, and you feel as if someone of John Travolta's status, even if it has waned in recent years, it should be fun and exciting to see John Travolta in a Super Bowl commercial and he's very quickly made it so that it actually isn't the least bit happy or entertaining to see John Travolta in a and Super he Bowl called commercial. it a tribute to Olivia Newton-John which like it did it did not no, feel that way not at all this is clearly a cash grab oh totally but uh, whatever everyone needs money for whatever they need money for that doesn't I don't you know at this there's point there's no way John Travolta needs money I just don't know about that I think that there's no way Ben Affleck needs money, and there he was in a in a commercial for Dunkin' Donuts, which was largely entertaining. There's he's from Boston, isn't Dunkin' like a big East Coast thing? No, he's he's absolutely he, it's that's well on as, brand, right? It's a hundred percent on brand, and it's it would be you like know, me it, doing a Dodger commercial. It would be, except that I'm I don't nobody. Think, yes, I know. I no, I I wasn't gonna say that. It's okay. Go on. You I was just that. gonna say that if you did a Dodgers commercial with the Super Bowl halftime, no one would go, well, there's no way Leslie needs the money because for heaven's sakes, Leslie's a journalist. Of course, Leslie <laughs> needs the money, Where, which is also, unfortunately, why journalists don't get Super Bowl commercial <laughs> money. But whereas Ben Affleck, even if you don't feel like Ben Affleck's career is going as well as it could be, no problems at all with Jennifer Lopez's career, and, and they got community property at this point. I, so I thought that the Dunkin' commercial was fun. I thought no, I thought it was a good one. I just I'm I'm saying that there's you, you never know who it needs made, money. It or made what. sense and it was and it was well executed. Also, that Nike trailer looks great. Which one was that? For the movie? Oh, Nike. Oh, yes. The for the for the Amazon uh, Matt Damon Ben Affleck um, Sonny Vaccaro uh, film night movie. Yes, it looks fine. I. Sure, why not? It it could be entertaining. It's a it's an engaging enough story. We'll we'll see how they actually handle it. I think that's the kind of movie where so much of it will depend on how smart the script actually ends up being because it is a good story, but my instinct is it doesn't seem like it's a story that's a 100-minute story, but if it's a good script, it could be. So there's 
I, I can see how it could be kind of a uh, behind the scenes basketball advertising version of Moneyball. That would be also what a it, great movie. That would be what it could be sort of in a best case scenario. So I just watched that again. It still holds up. It, it does. It still frustrates me that they pretend that uh, that Tim Hudson, Barry Zito and uh, Matt Mulder don't exist and that um, and that Miguel Tejada doesn't exist and that the entire reason why the A's under the watch of Brad Pitt were successful was because they understood that Scott Hatterberg got on base, which is not untrue, but it's such a corner of the actual narrative. It is not the actual narrative of those teams. And I find Moneyball to be disingenuous for that reason. Uh, why are we talking about Moneyball? I'm not sure. <laughs> you See, we was... started talking about football, and now here we are. We just both really are excited that pitchers and catchers reported to spring training. We are, and, and we're also running out of things to say about the Super Bowl. Lots yeah. of people watched it because people watched the Super Bowl. Uh, I was and... done talking about the Super Bowl, I think, Sunday. <laughs> And yet it is still it will still be the most watched television event of the year. And doing so, our job talking about the big day. Exactly. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number four. Set in a retro-futuristic world halfway between the 1950s and the 2050s, Apple's Hello Tomorrow stars Billy Crudup as a salesman whose properties on the moon may not be quite the vacation escapes he pitches to potential clients. We're joined this week by Stephen Falk, co-showrunner on Hello Tomorrow, alongside series creators Amit Bala and Lucas Jensen. Formerly a recapper with Television Without Pity, Falk was a writer and producer on shows including Weeds and Orange is the New Black, before creating FX's ultra-prickly rom-com You're the Worst. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here, and I, I love listening. It's uh, one of my favorite podcasts. I do not generally like podcasts at all. So you're in well now. I feel company. like now I feel like I want to get you uh, sort of pandering with additional information. What do you like about us, Stephen? <laughs> um, the guests you have, um, like <laughs> myself, are usually really top notch. <laughs> well done, well done. I think that was I, I think that was a good cover. Um, okay, so let's start at the beginning with Hello Tomorrow. Uh, the original pilot was written by Amit Bala and Lucas Jansen. When did you become involved? What brought you on board? What attach, attracted you to the property? Well, I, I yeah, so I came on board probably around May or June of 2021. Um, 
and what I loved about it um, was uh, the entire notion of the show. They had a very clear vision. They'd been working on the show uh, um, at Lucas. Um, they're David Milch people. They're in the Milch camp, um, you know, and 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 they're as all of his people, I think, are incredibly smart, um, way smarter than I am. And they they brought this fully realized world, this retro future world that somehow has mental real estate, probably because of Walt Disney, but um, really, really lives in our imagination from, I think, an, you know, a, a early childhood. Um, and uh, and it was just such a captivating, amazing world. Um, they had a lead actor named Billy Crudup. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's incredibly uh, charming and uh, such a lovely guy. Um, so he was also a big, big um, drawing point. Um, I had not worked with Apple. There were just a lot of things that converged at the same time. Um, and, you know, it, it was the, the sort of thing that's happening a lot now where, um, you know, younger or less experienced creators are paired with um, a, a, a crafty vet uh, who sometimes want to take all credit for what they uh, did and steal their show and kick them out. Um, but I'm not good enough to do that. So I just kind of went along for the ride. <laughs> I was actually going to, that was actually my next question. You know, we've seen, this has become like a big trend in, in, in our industry with experienced showrunners being paired with new creators to help guide them through that process. So, you know, from someone who's doing that right now, what's the appeal of taking a gig like that? And why was that something that you wanted to do outside of, you know, this, this little unknown actor you've heard of in a platform that uh, I think may, may have some money behind it? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't have a, a PR person here to, to slap me um, and stop me from saying uh, things. Um, but I'll try to I'll try to use my internal one. Um, but but honestly, I it happened at a time when I was working on a feature prepping a, a movie and it happened to fit in at the right time. And I thought that I could be of service to these two incredibly smart people who just needed some help, some guidance, a little little muscle, which I guess I have. Um, I, I do have experience and I do have a little muscle in terms of, um, you know, having, whether it's it's earned respect or at least the patina of respect by the executives, that I can call them and say, look, we we need this for this to work. We, or how to negotiate casting or, or all, all of those things, um, how to hire department heads, a lot of that, that stuff. Um, so it, it just had, you know, and also it was a Zoom room and they're in the, it, 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 it just fit in nicely with what I was doing. And then my movie got pushed because uh, of uh, actor schedule and I ended up being able to sort of really dive in full time on this. And um that ended up being about a year and a half process. What is the feeling like of realizing that you've reached the wily veteran stage of your career? <laughs> oh boy. Um, it is, uh, it's a little sort of intimidating because you go very quickly from feeling like a complete newbie to, you know, then, then, uh, you know, a couple shows in your belt and then suddenly you're way more experienced than anyone else somehow. And you still don't feel like, you know, anything. Um, and, and that's sort of how I entered into it. But, but in, in terms of practical application, uh, I did find my sea legs pretty quickly. I hadn't been in production 
I done I shot an episode of um, a show called Teenage Bounty Hunters after You're the Worst, but since You're the Worst, I'd really just been in in um, development hell, as they say, uh, for at that point two years. So it it felt like I didn't have my sea legs. But then once I you know had to call up a, a studio or a network and yell about something, I was like, oh yeah, I remember how to do this. Yeah, I want to go back and touch on you know the, you know how we actually first met because I I do remember you know as you're talking about getting your sea le- sea legs, I remember knowing that you were going to be at, at TCA for for you're the worst before that show came out and I had covered the development of that show but what really what made your name stick in my mind was an essay that you wrote on your former blog about the experience of having the rug pulled out from under you on a show that you did for NBC called Next Caller, Please, with Dane Cook. And it was picked up to series. You and your dog, you wrote so so eloquently about moving across country to New York for the show and then getting your like halfway through production and then getting a phone call and saying, yeah, the show's dead. And then having to pack up and grab a bottle of Jameson and hit the road and go home. And <laughs> I just remember that essay was so... Like that that's what I, what honestly what drew me to your show and what drew me to you're the worst too is because anyone who who can be that upfront and that candid about what a crappy process that was, that's someone that I want to interview. And you continue to be that way. So I'm really happy that you don't have a PR person on the call. <laughs> but you know, that experience, if you're and that was that was gonna be the first show that you created after coming up under Genji Cohan on on Weeds and Orange is the New Black, and you just said Teenage Bounty Hunters, which was her as well. But when you look back at that process of getting that call from Lionsgate about the show being scrapped, how did that really change the trajectory of your career? And how do you kind of contend with it now that it's kind of happening to more and more creators? Yeah. It, 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 now that you say that, it, it does strike me suddenly that these things are happening in, in, in real, in like real time, people are learning that their show is being pulled off out of the library of a streamer or that their $90 million movie they made is never going to be seen because it's more, more valuable as a, as a tax write-off. Um, you know, at, at that moment we, and we've talked about this, uh, so I won't bore you, but, but there was a real sense of social media being in its infancy, um, and just gaining its power as a direct mouthpiece from, the artist, if you will, to the viewer. Um, it was it was something that the, you know, Jen Salky had to contend with uh, very, very soon after that, um, where people like myself and Dan Harmon and and uh, Ryan Murphy and, and others were taking to Twitter, really, um, to to talk directly about uh, what was happening uh, in the industry and, you know, John August and, and people like that. Um, certainly have have taken that and, and run with it, but um, yeah, you know. And now we're in a world where you know the 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 A list stars are getting to announce, you know, casting or, or shooting, or, or we're really you know we we flipped it that that is being weaponized um, now just as the same PR mouthpiece. It's no different. It's just they've taken over the you know Vin Diesel's Twitter and are allowing him to to say shit. Uh, Hashtag before, sponsored before tweet. um but it for me for me it it kind of just uh solidified my desire to not try to play um play too cute 
um, and and adopt a voice that isn't mine when talking to people like you um, or, or or discussing a show. I, I think there's a there's a level of transparent transparency and candor that is effective and and um, and that that one wants to listen to um, about the industry. And, and hopefully I can provide that without getting t- in too much trouble. I, well, I want to ask about the getting in too much trouble. Has yeah. anyone has anyone after that time, after you wrote about it on your blog, after you kind of showed how the sausage was made in any meetings? Did anyone make snide comments to you like, well, that's going to appear on your blog or I know you're going to tweet about that? Like, did anyone start uh, treating you with kid gloves because they felt like you were maybe too honest or too out there? Yeah, or did that I, have any kind of negative effect on your career? Not that I know of. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot lot has been said uh, outside of my ear uh, range, but um, I do think that I I mean no no one no one ever you know but but uh, but there is around the same time you did did give rise to rules right so when you're on a show you would get these rules uh, of please don't write about this you can't tweet from set all this shit you know. Uh, and you know the 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 benefit was that um, that pretty soon I had my own show and and no one really can tell the showrunner what to do that much and so instead they beat up on the other actors or or you know or or poor crew member who was you know filming something he shouldn't have um, but no I mean you know and you know we're still living in that world where there are all these rule you know I have. I have rules and talking points in front of me that that God bless the the streamer who gave them to me. I'm not going to look at, but um, but I understand why they do that because because um, they, they're spending a lot of money and they want to control the narrative. And it's kind of the cat's kind of out of the bag for that a little bit. But have I gotten in trouble? No, but I'm I hate getting in trouble, so I hope I don't. <laughs> yeah. Pro tip for any showrunner listening: if you get a quote from anyone that says "thrilled," just Delete it instantly. Like, I'm not going to run it. We're not, we don't, no, just don't. <laughs> it's a pet peeve. Sorry. Sorry to detour there. So, okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about Hello Tomorrow. Uh, when we do these, when we do the intros to these interviews, always toss in or try to toss in a plot summary. This is a really, really hard show to summarize in one sentence. I'm curious what, at this point, your elevator pitch for the show is when you're explaining it to friends and loved ones, and how long it took to refine that pitch into something that actually made people want to jump on board. Well, you know, it's such a visual show. It really, um, it, 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 it exists in a... In an imagination we all sort of share, but but what's wonderful about it is that it exists in a world that is purely of the imagination that doesn't exist, but it exists enough that it is recognizable. You know, it, it's a sort of um, uh, unholy marriage between the Jetsons and Mad Men. Um, I, I don't know if I have a, a great handle on on how to sell it. Uh, I just kind of have a good handle on how to make it. Um, but I but I think specifically, you know, it's. It's a very kind of a, a throwback show. It's a show about about hope. It's a show about you know a, a imagination. It's a show about um, optimism. It's a show about what happened to optimism in the face of late capitalism. It's a show about the ways in which technology lets us down. Um, you know, uh, even right this moment. Um, uh, 
And, you know, but but at the heart, it's a show about a, a, a group of traveling salesmen uh, at a time when being a salesman meant something. Um, it was a it was a honest living. It was a good living. It was sort of represented the American dream and people didn't close their doors uh, on them immediately. And, you know, metaphorically, that says so much about where we are now and where we were then. But it's about a, a group of salesmen selling uh, lunar timeshares. Um, and uh, really focusing on Billy Crudup's character, Jack Billings, and um, and his relationships with his his crew and his relationship with the truth. You know, the show we we've you've already talked so much about the, about the visuals. I mean, it's a stunning show. I'll be completely honest. I watched the pilot, didn't have a clue what the show was about, but it it is so gorgeous to look at that I just watched the entire series. And you know, for for me. I, you know, I get the, the, you know, the optimism part. I get the technology part. I get the part that he, you know, he's, Jack is a little bit shady, but yet he kind of believes everything that he's selling. But you know, I'm curious to hear you say it. What are the themes that you hope viewers take away from the show as a whole, or at least the first season as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's something lovely about the idea of blind optimism, Um I was talking to Genji recently and she was telling me, and I, I, I'm going to, I don't even know where this came from and it may be a well-known philosophy, but it was something she was reading about and why she really wants to, to work in opti optimistic realms and put things out there that have a sense of optimism and why she wouldn't do, you know, Station Eleven or, or, or The Last of Us because th this notion that when you put something out there, when you depict a world it ends up becoming reality to the viewer. It ends up really infecting um, the future in a way. And I started to think about what she was saying, and I, I kind of agree. And the, the show that I was working on, Hello Tomorrow, fits so nicely with that. Um, yes, Jack may or may not be a shady character, but he truly believes, he actually believes that what he's selling, whether it's true or not, will better the lives of those who buy it. That, that, that just the act of saying yes, opening yourself up to another possibility, um, that there's something powerful in that. And I, I tend to agree, even though I'm, a, you know, Leslie, you know, I'm a pretty cynical person. Um, you know, I think even you're the worst at the heart of it. It was there was a belief in love and there was a a belief in in trying, even if only for one day. Um, and so that is, I guess, an optimism that I share. Um, and I, I do hope that viewers um, hold on to that and, and grasp onto that, because I think it's something that we we're really mired in, in, you know, where the world is going. And perhaps if we depict a, a, a different endpoint, we can start to reach for that or at least think that there's a possibility. How much was there a, a series Bible for the retro futuristic now of the show? Um, uh, I, I don't know what the term would be, but like a hundred percent. There was a, there was a Bible created um, in the style of retrofuturism uh, created by uh, Lucas and Amit and um, the crew at Mortal Media. 
which is Ryan Khalil and uh, Blake Griffin's company, and, and Noah Weinstein um, uh, is their executive there. And um, uh, they really, they created this entire world in the sales uh, document that was so effective that it brought, um, you know, it brought us uh, A-level talent in all departments because really because of what we were selling was so clear and defined. And the guys had been thinking of the show for a long time. They really had the arc of the season um, we just, you know, it was up to me and the writers and, and them to to really just flesh it out. Um, and we had a great writing staff. Um, I, I'd love to talk about them, but that's probably for another time. Well, I do want to follow up on that. But, um, you know, with, with all of the technology that, that is depicted in, in this show, one of the things that we know for, from covering Apple for the last few years is they are very specific about the depiction of technology and how it is portrayed. Was there anything that, that Apple came back to you with it that you either had to change or that you couldn't do? What were some of their notes in that regard? Well, we had an iPod shuffle kill someone and they were kind of thought that was maybe not great for them. Um, <laughs> was uh, it just playing no. the Macarena over and over or something like that? <laughs> yeah, right. uh, oh, I missed this shuffle. I'm gonna find my own old one. Um, no, you know, Apple, They surprisingly, every time we would talk about the, you know, late stage cap capitalism and the lie that uh, technology has promised us, uh, they were pretty on board. I mean, you know, the, the, we have these, we spent a lot of time creating the 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 robots and the, the different, um, the different gadgets in the show. A lot of them are, are puppets. A lot of them are practical. Um, most of them are, and, um, you know, trying to, trying to act with, uh, where two creepy people come in dressed in full green, uh, you know, <laughs> crawling along the ground, holding this robot. I don't know how the actors did that. Um, but, but Apple was actually, they were really chill about, um, about it. We created a different version of baseball that, and they just, I remember their one thing they were like, just don't put everyone in hats. Like, we just don't want too many hats, which became a joke for us. We were like, hats? Why does? What is it why matter? do they hate hats? But I think <laughs> it was this idea that they that certain people over there were afraid that, we, that the actors would then get into a stylistic, like, eh, 23 skidoo, right? Like a, a style of, uh, like, hat acting, like noir acting that, uh, to their credit, none of them did. And there are plenty of hats. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that I act a certain way when I put my Dodger hat on. And I think when uh, when I'm near someone like you who wears a giant hat, I mm. think that affects me in a different way. So I understand the hat piece. That was also just a really subtle dig at the fact that you're a Giants fan. No, I I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I, I welcome. I, my, my children dig at me all day, every day. They go, Dad, look, it's a Dodgers logo. And they say, let's go Dodgers when I'm watching a game. They're horrible. You should adopt them, please. Those are wonderful children, Stephen. <laughs> Shout out to your wife. <laughs> I, I want to go back to the to the Bible of it all because I'm very curious how conceived it is where this world came from. Like, was there an inflection point in 1954 at which the world of the show went one way and our world went another way. Where, how do we end up in this kind of, as you say, halfway between Mad Men and the Jetsons? Yeah, I think the answer is probably going to be a little disappointing because as much as people try to pin it down, like, is this a, you know, a man in the high castle alternate universe? It's not. It's a purely imagined world um, where uh, Cadillacs uh, hover 
um, and uh, and and people jetpack off to work after kissing their wife goodbye. Um, so there isn't there isn't that, um, and and I I think you know the 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 ask is for the audience just to accept that this is the world, and instead of baseball, we have jet ball, and we have a robot ump to uh, kick dirt at uh, rather than uh, some guy. In, I'm still mad at umps, but anyway, uh, um, yeah, it, it's it's really just a, it's a it's an a, a imagined world that still somehow resonates and and feels familiar because their retrofuturism was such a popular thing back there. Um, this you know this back in the in the fifties when a lot of this was created, a, a lot of the the icon iconography that we recognize as uh, retrofuturism, because there was this desire to imagine a world that was like ours but also better and different, and I think that's where it came out of in the in the sort of um, in the nineteen fifties of it in the post war. A world we 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 wanted to imagine something that would take us away and make cooking dinner really easy, and we could you know call our kids on our shoe, and uh, that that would somehow be a brighter future, um, and we are in it, and it's not. <laughs> but the world, because it is so very much of the fifties in its partial, uh, at least partially, it evokes certain things. And I'm curious how you wanted to address or not address the actual isms of the 1950s, be it racism or sexism and put them into a contemporary or forward looking context by using this setting. I think we wanted to, um, uh, live in a world where those isms didn't exist. This is not a show that, you know, we don't, spend episode seven tackling racism. We rather just have two of the main four salesmen be black and we don't address it. I think, um, I think again, that's an effort to um, create this alternate world that, that hopefully the audience can just buy into and imagine that is like ours, but, but doesn't have that, political relationship to it because i think the politics in the show are more about um about capitalism and the american dream than about um about things like racism and sexism but there's still the there's the friction that's baked in when as you say you have black main characters and for example they walk in in full 50s garb to a kind of country club setting and it's almost unavoidable, or at least it was for me, to think, okay, the half of the show that is set in 1955, this would not be possible. The half of the show that's set in 2050, maybe it would be. Is there a consciousness of, of that friction that you inevitably are creating in that case? I mean, I, for me, no. I mean, I think if I was doing like the Ligarone reboot, right, I would be very on board with, okay, well, let's tell this story at, at, sort of as a sidecar to the main story, right? Let, let's let's delve into that. Let's see how racism affected them. Let's see how, while these women weren't given the opportunity, here's really a woman who was not given that opportunity. And, and I think that felt right because it was sort of a historical record, an imagined historical record to some degree, but, but a historical record. Um, but this show is is not that. I think this show is 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 purely an effort to cast the best actress we could find 
um, to cast in a way that um, feels right for for 2022 um, in in effort to lever, le- level the playing field. But it's not that show that is going to tackle that. And I, I don't think we could... We, we didn't have the narrative room um, to carry that freight that you were feeling. I think that just has to be freight that, that you carry on your own in, in this case. So let's talk a bit about Billy, because you mentioned that he was on board when you came in. And so much of the show hinges on him and his ability to be smarmy and artificial in one second and then wholly sincere in the next second. That's kind of what he's built a lot of his career on. What does having a star like Billy allow you to get away with in terms of that character who could either be the hero of this piece or absolutely the villain of this piece? I think it makes it possible. And and without him, I think it might have been impossible because I think it would tip too far in, in either direction. Um, Billy Crudup, I could not sing his praises more. And I have worked on shows where I would not um, bullshit you and, and I wouldn't even try uh, to sing their praises. I would just sort of say, very talented, let's move on. Um, but, but, but he's he's so open and he approached this role i mean it's you know he's taking a lot from his father who was a salesman and and a bit of a grifter um so it's it's very close to him um as well close to his heart um but he really he dug into the nature of the character where he's making in a lot of a lot of time he's making shit up in the moment and doesn't have it all thought out and there was a great there was a lot of um, desire, I think, at certain times on the studio and, and, and network's part to have it be clear that this character is always one step ahead of everyone, always has, you know, cleverer than anyone, you know, that just when you, you thought uh, he was getting trapped, oops, he had a way out, right? A, a, which I think is part of the anti-hero thing in TV and that, that we want that. We want Walter White to have a secret plan. Um and uh, he doesn't, and he gets punched, and he and he and he gets called out, um, and that was very important to him. And that was very weird for me to encounter an actor who wanted to look less cool and be less polished uh, uh, on on screen. Um, you know, Billy comes along with a certain look he can't get away from, and he knows it's his bread and butter, and he's very handsome and looks great in a suit. But he was also. Um, uh, uh, more than willing, but but or, or, almost demanding of us to throw him into deeper and deeper water and see if he could swim. And uh, you know, I won't bore you with the rest that uh, uh, goes along with it. But but uh, you know, it is to say when you have a number one on the call sheet um, who is a true leader. And I hate executive producers. I, I hate when actors are made executive producers just because they can get that deal. Um, but Billy really did the job, um, and uh, 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 and I, I can't say enough about him. And it isn't just his character. Like, most of the characters in the series are either lying to themselves or lying to everybody else pretty much all the time. How important is it for you guys to know when you're writing the characters, even if it isn't appearing actually on the screen, what these characters are feeling genuinely underneath the dialogue? 
That's really hard. It's really, really hard when you're writing characters who are either lying or lying to themselves or being lied to or lying about a lie or making up a new lie while defending against a lie. It was really, really tough. It was, we had to, not only as the writers, we had to, you know, navigate a lot of different layers of complexity, but for the actors, it was so hard to be able to play, okay, I am telling a lie but I think they think a different lie. So I have to cover both lies at the same time. It was really, really complex. It's not anything I, uh, I would be able to uh, do as an actor, but, but luckily they were. But yeah, we, we definitely uh, had to sometimes stop and think really hard. What does that other character actually know? What does the audience actually know? Uh, you know, you have to so often go, okay, the camera starts, it's on that person. What is the audience thinking? Okay, the audience is thinking this. This is all the information we've given them. Okay, so now we have to give them another piece of information uh, in order to make the scene make sense. It's it's about, you know, it's about parsing out uh, information sometimes, which is really difficult. And sometimes with all that lying, there's there's the possibility that the tone of the piece could go maybe more in the direction of farce than this actually does. I'm curious, as you were going along, were there versions that felt more comedic that just weren't tonally right for the conceit of the show? Yeah. I mean, the tone was really tricky. Uh, Amit Lucas ha had a very specific tone in mind. Um, you know, there, there was a lot of talk of like, you know, Preston Sturgis and, and, you know, Frank Capra and really kind of this, this old timey, um, kind of Americana, this sort of optimism. Um, and so totally when you're writing, when you're writing uh, uh, misunderstandings and, you know, sort of Shakespearean uh, slash um, Three's Company uh, <laughs> level of misunderstanding, it, it, yeah, it can, it can often go careening onto the wrong uh, side. And we often did, and we just had to to rein it back either with the performances or rewriting or in editing. And so much of the, the spine of the show is based around the idea of salesmen as liars and salesmen as storytellers. How much of your job these days would you say is being a good salesman? And where does that rank on the list of things you like about your job? I feel fake saying this, but I also think it's true. And that I do believe we are at a time of a high uh, uncertainty in the industry. I think everyone is, you, you could probably find an article in every single month of your publication in the last 10 years uh, or in every, the, oh, set, what an uncertain time. Even in boom time of whatever, but who knows what's going to happen next week. There are rumors that they might pull back. I mean, so, so and and executive uncertainty and executive turnover is is wild. Um, so many of my projects have been affected just by the fact that one person bought it and then they leave, and then someone else comes in and needs to remake their thing. Or as we're seeing now, you know, there was a lot of overspending in the arms race, and now they're they're pulling back or saying they're pulling back. I mean, who know, who, who knows? Um, and so a lot of times you are having to. Educate a new executive, uh, seduce a new executive, um, uh, uh, or or really try to drill down to that executive what they're actually what they actually mean, why why they don't like it, or what they do like about it. And so there is a lot of salesmanship, and I actually don't 
I don't hate that part of the job. Is it gross to say? I'm not, you know, I've been pitching and selling projects for 20 years. I, um, I don't mind. I don't mind trying to make uh, something sound like the, you know, the best version of what I think it can be because I'm not lying. I, I really think I can pull it off. Sometimes I can't. I, I, I sell it and then I go, oh, no, 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 I, I can't do that. Um, or sometimes I, I do. Um, but yeah, it is, a, it is a sales job, but hopefully it doesn't involve a lot of lying. It can involve a little massaging of the truth here or there. Yeah, the, the, the spin. Yes, sure. that our industry is so good with. But um, I want to touch on, you know, you said, the, you know, the two years that preceded joining Hello Tomorrow, you were stuck in development hell. And I want to go back and look at some of those projects. So sure. I know the first one that jumps out at me was the WeWork TV series that you were hired to serve as showrunner on that had succession or has succession breakout Nicholas Braun attached to star. What's going on there? Uh, he's just way too tall. Like we tried to film it and the ca camera couldn't find him. Um, what happened? I, I wrote the pilot. I wrote the Bible, working with with Nick and and um, the Churnin Company and, and a bunch of folk. And honestly, um, we were always kind of neck and neck with the uh, the other project. And they cast um, Anne Hathaway and Jared Leto one day, and ours was dead. Oh, and the, and the funny thing is that the uh, directors, do you know who directed that? Um, that that directing team who did a lot of um, This Is Us, I'm forgetting their name. They moved in across the hall from me right as they were shooting WeWork. Uh, so so I, just, I just see the victors uh, move in and, and prep uh, what should have been my show. Ugh, brutal. And then at the same time, you were doing, you sold a magic drama based on the novel Spoonbenders with uh, Berlanti, Greg Berlanti attached uh, to yeah. Showtime. Obviously, we've seen the last two weeks Showtime basically implode as it as uh, Paramount Global merges it with Paramount Plus. Listen, Leslie, if you think Paramount Plus with Showtime isn't a fantastic moniker <laughs> and and that doesn't carry on the golden days of uh, of Nevins and Greenblatt, you're crazy. This is that lying part of the thing that you said that you don't really do, right? No, Gary Levine is so happy to He's... be a senior advisor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're going we're gonna to pour some out uh, for Gary and the whole team at Showtime. But what's the status of Spoonbender? Is that, uh, is that dead, it, too, with just, Showtime? I, I don't think we ever cracked it. I wrote about 20, 20 versions, and, and there were a lot of different uh, cooks in the, in the kitchen. And ultimately, I don't think I made a version that everyone... Every cook liked, so it got thrown out. Uh, that sucks. Yeah. Well, from an industry point of view, you know, you're the worst streams on Hulu, and the future of that platform for is, now, for now, <laughs> is very much up in question. What have you heard about the status of FX content, including your show, as far as it relates to Hulu and and its future there? I have not heard anything actually. I, you know, I I, I keep looking for a clarification of what's going to happen to Hulu between Comcast and and Disney, and I know they're. There are certain triggers and and uh, and 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 demands that each side get to make and thresholds and and whatnot. Um, I but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think FX. You know, John Langraff again is one of the smartest people in, in this town, and I think he has positioned um, himself within the current uh, realities of the streaming world, but in a way that keeps FX keeps the integrity and the, and the brand integrity um, 
in a, in a really smart way. So I don't think they're going anywhere. Is Hulu going somewhere? I, I, I really don't. Do you have a preference on where you'd like to see You're the Worst eventually live? If it's not going to be on Hulu, for example? Uh, no, I don't really care. I'm trying to think of You're the Worst and Gretchen and Lindsay and everybody doing Disney what Plus. they do, living alongside The Disney Mandalorian and The Plus Simpsons sure. on Disney Plus. Sure, but yeah. isn't, 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 isn't Peacock hot? Let's just sell it to Peacock and, and it can be next to Poker Face. There you go. It sounds like a, a, a dream team right there. I keep being told Peacock is hot, so I'm paying. I mean, they are. They've, they're, you know, they've got a couple of shows that are that are breaking through. I mean, we we had Susan Rover on episode 200 a couple of weeks ago. There you go. So. And my, my wife uh, just finished working on the new Damon Lindelof show over there with uh, Mrs. Betty Davis, Gilpin. Yeah. It looks, looks fantastic. Yeah, so they've, they've got some interesting things coming up. So, yeah. Um, you know, but from a creator's pr perspective, you know, we're increasingly seeing content being removed from these streamers, you know, this week we've already heard that Netflix is dumping Arrested Development. Uh, obviously, they don't own that. Disney does. But, you know, how high on the list of concerns for the Writers Guild um, and its upcoming negotiations with streamers uh, and studios for a new deal is this this increased push of just disappearing content? Is that like is how high is that on your list? And were you at the recent uh, meeting, the very first meeting of the WGA about the new contract? No, I'm I'm going to one next week. Um, I uh, I for for me I can, I won't speak for the guild because uh, they don't let me. But um, for me, <laughs> I, I think um, I think dumping things off your platform. I don't think we were ever told that it would last forever. I don't think you know in the history of television things go away, right? They end and then maybe they get rerun every once in a while or maybe they get sold to, um, uh, you know, TV land and then eventually they were on DVD. Um, I, I, I certainly hope everyone can always watch my, sh my shows, but, uh, if it goes away, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, that it, it's not my top level of concern. I think it sucks, but, but in terms of actual and actionable thing, uh, it, that doesn't seem high on the list because um, it, it, it's, you know, it's an accounting uh, issue, I think. For you, but what, what's most important as these negotiations are coming up in May and as the deal expires, what's important for you to find in, in a new contract? I mean, I think, I think you know, streaming residuals and, and things like that. I mean, I think it's... it's um, yeah, it's just it's in a completely new ecosystem. You know, these short short order short rooms and and stuff like that. Um, but but you know, waking up to the reality of of what TV looks like now and compensating writers and 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 directors and actors and and crew people. Um, you know, with the the same old math or the math that actually kind of resembles what we were promised. Um, I think that's probably pretty important. Given the industry's consolidation, what kind of challenges does that create for a writer like you with original ideas? I mean, you know, going back to Showtime, they just announced what two Dexter spinoffs, four billion spinoffs, and then they gutted their entire original department, basically. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the the, the reliance on IP is not great. It's not new. Um, it's just got gotten a little nuts. Um, you know, there there's this. Uh, company that that gets publishes or gets published or doesn't even get published sells short stories and then they 
call that, and then there's a bidding war, you know, for this horror short story, and then they call that IP. Is that is it is that IP is that intellectual? Where did it exist? Where what what audience does it come built in with? It it doesn't. Um, you know, and yes, yes, only you know, building out these worlds. I get it. It makes sense. I think though, you know, what 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 feels most challenging is even less than like when when I pitched You're the Worst to FX, I knew what an FX show was. I knew what holes they had in their development slate, you know. Um, and I could kind of tailor that for them and kind of did. And it kind of worked. Now when I go into you do you know pitch pitching on something, I don't know what Hulu is or is going to be. I don't necessarily know what Peacock is or is going to be. I don't know what Apple is. I, I worked on that. I don't exactly know what Apple is yet. They they seem to be forming an identity, but it but it so it's always been hard I think for uh you know traditional linear channels and now streamers to forge a real strong identity. Um and yeah, you can and you can be like Showtime Plus with Paramount and say well, our identity is these three things, and we're going to do these shows and these shows and these shows. That's not really identity. Those are just like three things you like and and three buckets you put everything into and threw everything else that didn't kind of neatly fit into that bullshit uh, away. Uh, so I think that's hard, like knowing where something might best exist. It used to be easy to say, oh, yeah, I can see this on this or this. Now you're like, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Somewhere. Is there a level, though, on which that actually maybe helps you? Like, if there were clearly delineated brand identities for a lot of those things, then maybe you could think, okay, if I don't sell this to this one place that does that one thing, there's nowhere else. Whereas, in theory, there are 500 places where you could maybe sell things to now. Yeah, I mean, sh yes, sure. But at the same time, I think w when people know what they, or when places knew, know, know what they are and know what they want, um, it makes it a lot easier for the development process, for the buyers to buy things that actually could exist on CBS or on Blue Skies TNT. Was it TNT? USA. 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 Um, you know, or or when the WB was a thing, the first thing I ever sold was a, a, um, a WB hour long because it was the fucking WB and it fit exactly. And if they had passed, yeah, it may have been, uh, I, there weren't five other places, but there also weren't places that were just going to waste my time to the same degree as, as you can now. I mean, I don't want to go back to the, the pilot, the network pilot you know, system, but at least you kind of knew where you stood and, and it, and it was, and, and, and the death was uh, quick and merciless. Yeah. And you were competing with like 50 other pilots at the same time. Yeah. You were just, you were, you were just either, on one network. Yeah. yeah. You were, you were crying around Christmas or, or you were happy. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to loop back because, uh, to hello tomorrow. Cause you mentioned, you know, we talked about the creators, we talked about your involvement, but you also mentioned that, uh, mortal media is one of the producers. And that is of course, uh, Blake Griffin's production company. Yes. That Blake Griffin, how much was Blake Griffin actually around or involved here? So Blake, um, was, uh, was busy playing basketball in Brooklyn and Boston. Um, uh, I, th I don't know how mortal works, but I am actually working on them <laughs> a couple things. And, 
Um, of the two former athlete or current athlete partners, along with Noah, um, Ryan Khalil played in the NFL for 12 years, and he was on the ground day-to-day uh, on this thing. He was on set. He was in every meeting uh, and, and still is. Um, and then I'm working on a basketball thing that was announced um, uh, with Mortal, and Blake is in every meeting. So I think it's just a case-by-case basis um, how they, they break it down. And you, and you wouldn't have situations where people would want to be involved in the meetings that Blake Griffin happened to be popping up in. Uh, uh, well, um, the the basketball show I'm doing, if people want to be there because of Blake, hell yeah, come on, <laughs> I'm I'm happy for that. But but you know, the, Ryan and and Ryan is done with his uh, professional career. Uh, Blake is is certainly you know um, closer to being done than than starting. And those guys are really fucking serious about this company. And they hired a great executive uh, team and they're like really in it and they really want to be producers. They don't want to, even though, you know, some of their stuff is sports related, like they're doing the new white man can't jump um, and and this other basketball thing with me and a bunch of other stuff. Um, You know, Hello Tomorrow is really kind of started with them and uh, they made a short that was uh Amit and them and maybe Lucas I can't remember did a short uh that this sort of took off but that was sort of Ryan's baby so they're really really involved uh what about you what else is what's next should hello come tomorrow come back for a second season would you continue to be showrunner or have you kind of passed that torch back to the creators no I I mean when I when I I, I would pass it on when I when I first got involved I was like look you know the, yeah this could go one of two ways I could I could try to push you out steal the show and and try to revive a dying career and uh or you could have someone who happens to be the right time and they want to help and teach you how to do it and 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 then you know and then tip their cap. I mean, right away though, I was like, "You guys don't need me." I, I was like, "I'm not necessary." These guys are learning everything like that. And anyway, so of the like, uh, there are a lot of showrunners who should not be doing that job, and there are then some people who aren't showrunners and could be, and yeah, they could they could absolutely be doing it. So I'll I'll be moving on. I'm doing a bunch of movie projects and I'm developing uh, at a lot of different streamers uh, and traditional networks. Very cool. Well, we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying besides things that you've worked on personally? Uh, I enjoyed Poker Face. I thought that was a cool, uh, fun throwback. I, I like um, the, the Last of Us. Um, I'm watching and enjoying that. Um, I just watched Yellow Jackets on Paramount Plus with Showtime. And uh, <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, uh, I'm watching, uh, I just watched a home makeup over show on Netflix. <laughs> I can't remember what it was called, but I really liked while I was doing my Legos. I watched um, I watched some some people get their houses redone. That's uh, that's always uh, a lot of fun. Um, I just finished the entire run of What We Do in the Shadows, and I really like that. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Hello, tomorrow premieres Friday, February seventeenth, with its first three episodes before shifting to weekly rollout on Apple. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. 
Among this week's major new launches, Milo Ventimiglia returns to broadcast with ABC's The Company You Keep. Joel McHale is also back on broadcast in the Fox comedy Animal Control. Showtime bows the 12th victim. Netflix hits the links with Full Swing. And you just heard our interview with Stephen Falk about Apple's Hello Tomorrow. Dan, what do you got? Yep, those are those are definitely a lot of shows that are coming out this week and of variable quality. Uh, I'll I'll start by going back to the thing that I already mentioned, uh, which would be Full Swing, which is the golf version of basically Netflix's franchise that has now come out of the F1 documentary series that a lot of people loved, and that was followed by the tennis version last month that people seem to enjoy. I thought it was pretty good. And the golf version, which is full swing, premieres this week. And it feels very much of a piece with those, wherein, yes, it's nice if you like the sports and appreciate the sports, but they're kind of directed more at people who are sport skeptical or sport agnostic. Like, you like some sports, but you aren't sure that you care about golf or tennis or F1. So these are really good ways of getting you into those worlds if you're already predisposed towards them. And uh, Full Swing is particularly solid because the 2022 year that it's chronicling on the links was the year that the PGA Tour basically split in half with the advent of the Live Tour which we've talked about in the context of it now being a thing that is going to air on the CW. So we have discussed it. Uh, it is a, it's very, very interesting because they were there on the ground filming a dozen plus golfers and several of the golfers over the course of the year ditched the PGA tour and went off to a Saudi sponsored alternate golf league. And that, makes for an awful lot of drama. So yes, there's a lot of the normal stuff where it's like, okay, here's a here's an up-and-coming young star, meet the up-and-coming young star's attractive wife, meet their family, find an empathetic backstory, the star they survived cancer, or the star had a torn labrum and missed a season is coming back, or the star won two Grand Slams when they were young and hasn't won since, and now it's put up or shut up time for them. There's a lot of that. And they're definitely, they, they got a wide assortment. The tennis documentary was characterized by, okay, here are the young up and coming players who you've never heard of. Uh, the golf version is actually a really good split between actual superstar type players, Jordan Spath, Justin Thomas, uh, Rory McIlroy, and then a bunch of the younger and up and coming players. So they had cameras with Scotty Scheffler as he became the number one player in the world after having been nobody at the start of 2022. So it's a good mix of players, but really what makes it is that the league is splintering all around these players and people aren't talking and aren't admitting what they're considering. And, and then eventually you get Dustin Johnson rather frankly talking about why he's decided that he's simply going to go for the option that gives him more money to play fewer times in a year. Well, okay. Uh, so I, th I thought there was a lot of actually genuinely compelling underlying stuff in this documentary. So I, I enjoyed it and I mentioned it earlier. So I wanted to get to that up front. Uh, Animal Control on Fox has already premiered. Uh, I think it's, it's not horrible, but it's definitely not good at all. And it's a 
frustrating it's a frustrating blend of talented people being thwarted by really really weak material and it's it's all so dated and vaguely embalmed at some point in one of these early episodes somebody makes a joke about the double rainbow guy and you kind of wonder wow when was this script put in somebody's drawer that they're dropping a a 12 year old pop culture reference and thinking that people will think it's a cool reference uh you have joel McHale entirely on autopilot fronting the show a bunch of good people like uh vela lavelle is always fun to watch she's only a little fun to watch here it's not very good writing for her character the the challenges of attempting to deal with animals and the mixture of special effects required. I don't think they figured that out. The introductions to the characters are all extremely cumbersome, and there's just more... There's more exposition than any half-hour, entirely self-explanatory show should ever have to deal with. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't say that I laughed really at all in the three episodes I saw of Animal Control, uh, though the third episode does feature a kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls. And that's the sort of thing where, God, I mean, for heaven's sakes, you want to get that in the pilot. Why would you why, why would you make people wait three episodes for a kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls? And it doesn't even amount to anything. It's totally just a toss off kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls. It's not like you build an episode around a kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls. And I'm just at this point enjoying saying kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls. I, I got nothing else. It's uh, it's just kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls. And but also, who could have predicted that this show would have a kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls? Like, honestly, like, it's a given. It is, which is why you put it in the first episode. You give the people what they want and expect. Similarly, three episodes, no monkeys. Uh, you know, whereas whereas Animal Practice on NBC, which was a, a fairly bad show and uh, was canceled fairly quickly and is not really a show that anyone should have aspired to be like. At least it had a monkey in an actual regular role. Yes, that monkey was Crystal the monkey. Everything is all about Crystal the monkey. So again, I think you're going to update your profile pic here, Dan. I don't think I am. I think enough people know that I am a fan of Crystal the monkey and I don't need to, I don't need to say it again. I've said Crystal the monkey enough for one podcast. Uh, however, speaking of, completely random remakes of bad shows that failed that nobody remembers the company you keep which as you say is milo ventimiglia's return to tv he hasn't been gone that long uh you know this is us just ended last spring uh but it's entirely the catch the murray enos peter krause abc drama from five or six years ago uh, and the plot of that one, I mean, let's, let's just say what the plot of this one is because it's basically the plot of that one. It's, it's based on my fellow citizens, a, a Korean format, I believe. And the plot is that Milo Ventimiglia plays a, a high stakes con artist who's, who works basically with his family on, on elaborate cons. Uh, Sarah Wayne Callies plays his sister, you have uh, William Fickner and Polly Draper as his parents. Anyway, one of their one of their cons goes very, very wrong and causes trouble with a major Irish 
drug kingpin of some very fictionalized sort. Uh, anyway, his life is falling apart, and he has a one-night stand with a woman uh, named Emma, played by Catherine Heine Kim. He doesn't know what she does. She doesn't know what he does. Well, I already told you that he's a con artist. It turns out she waits for and she works for and wait for it because you're going to gasp when you hear this. She works for the CIA. No. Indeed. Well, I mean, for heaven's sakes, is she going to catch him? Is he going to outsmart her? Blah, blah, blah. And this is another show I, I tweeted making fun of the over-exposition of broadcast dramas and comedies. And so, I, you know, that was, <laughs> that was born of having just watched Animal Control and then watching The Company You Keep. The Company You Keep, like the first episode and a half, is nonstop cumbersome exposition, explaining who these characters are, explaining the dynamics of their family. It's a lot of stuff, and it's the kind of thing that a a premium cable show, because it would have the 55-minute runtime, well, that's an extra 13 minutes for exposition, which is actually helpful. Well, okay, you figure 42 minutes into one episode and then 20 minutes into another. By that point, the basic exposition of uh, these two families, because her family is, they're a political dynasty. Uh, people want them to become the Asian-American Kennedys or something. She has a brother who's running for senator running for governor or something and she's got a, a father who was formerly governor or senator or something the family is powerful and so you have basically these two different versions of the family business that are intersecting in potentially awkward and romantically challenging ways and i thought the second half of the second episode was pretty decent once they got out of the uh <laughs> out of the need to explain who everybody was and just got to have a couple suspense set pieces and a little romantic flirting, all of that, I thought, okay, this, this could be the kind of show that I might watch. But it takes a long time to get there, and you have to groan through a lot of exposition. The actors are are decent. Uh, Milo Ventimiglia is, you know, enjoying playing kind of shady and scruffy. I've never seen Catherine Heine Kim before, but she's she's good and likable. They have some chemistry between them, so that's all fine. I always enjoy watching William Fickner acting. Always good to see Polly Draper on TV. I, there there are elements here that could work. I just, again, I mentioned it last week with Not Dead Yet. It's how many episodes does it take before things get promising and who has the patience to wait for those things to happen? Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what to do with it, but I thought the second half of the second episode was interesting. So maybe you'll buy in. I don't think it's better than the catch. I don't think it's worse than the catch. I just think basically it's the catch. And the catch didn't last very long, so I guess ABC is just rolling the dice that a slightly different arrangement might work. Um, hello, tomorrow. You just heard our interview with Stephen Falk. Uh, I don't. I don't think it comes together. Just to sort of keep things short and simple, I, I think that the the retrofuturism it's a good idea. There's a lot of really fun visual stuff to it. Just the dramatic thrust of the series is lacking. Now, I kept watching and kept watching reasonably contentedly because it's a perfect role for Billy, Billy Crudup. 
And I think he's a lot of fun to watch being smarmy, exposing the cracks beneath the smarminess. And it, and it's a lot of him. And the supporting cast is really good. Uh, former TV's top five guest uh, Hank Azaria is, is a hoot. It's exactly a, a vintage kind of Hank Azaria performance. He's played this kind of 1950s spit and polish kind of guy, uh, you know, most memorably in, in quiz show, but lots of other things as well. I think he's good. I think a lot of the supporting cast is, is reasonably entertaining. This is the kind of thing that Alison Pill does fairly regularly. She, she kind of enjoys playing a kind of 1930s, 1940s style, uh, fast talking broad. And that's kind of where her character here goes. Mostly what I would tell you though, is, is watch it for Billy Crudup. If you care, uh, because he's just really good. And again, the futuristic touches are good. Just don't expect after you've watched an episode or two, okay, I'm going to keep watching until it hooks into something because it, it really, unfortunately, mostly doesn't. And so, you know. But it's a real delight visually. And I say that as someone who completed the entire season. And I, I still, yeah, it's, just it's a cool thing like the it looks really really cool and if you're a lover of vintage ties there are a lot of cool oh it's it, well. the 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 blend the retro future blending is is really cool to see and there are lots of really good kind of small uh background jokes and or background ideas because it's not necessarily a comedy it's hard to say exactly what it is uh there's there's a lot of stuff here um i think if it were an hour long show I think I would be very hesitant to to recommend it. It would be like, oh, God, that's just a lot of stuff. I think because it is a half-hour show, it's fairly easy to latch on to the things that you like if you find things you like. And then uh, finally, Showtime has The 12th Victim, which is a four-part documentary series about – it's about the Starkweather Fugate – Murders, which were, of course, the basis for Badlands and served as the inspiration for True Romance and Natural Born Killers and a bunch of other stuff. But the the key point of the series is to attempt to clarify and clear Carol Ann Fugate's uh, involvement in the entire thing. Um, the documentary is full of big ideas. It's also full of really dumb film analysis talking about the the films that were inspired by it. I think it, I think it doesn't do well with that at all. I think that it has a lot of things that annoy me in all manner of documentaries, not just this one. Like when you have a, when you have psychologists offering armchair analysis of people they've never met, there are a lot of people doing psychoanalysis analysis of, of Caroline Fugate here that haven't met her, know absolutely nothing about her and, and are just, talking out of their asses, basically, and it really annoys me. There's a, there's a lot of that here. Um, it's it's four hours. I think it probably could have been cut down to 100 minutes. I, I think it could have been very much streamlined, and I think it probably would have worked better. I think they needed people who had smarter things to say about true crime and smarter things to say about the cultural influence of this horrifying crime but I think that if you are a fan of the true crime genre, even if it, even if the series is criticizing what the genre has done to sometimes innocent people, uh, I think I think you would find some things to watch. So to sort of go through things, 
full swing, is very entertaining, and you don't necessarily have to be a golf fan to find interesting things about it. It is on Netflix. Uh, skip Animal Control, though the third episode does have a kangaroo kicking a guy in the balls. There are interesting things in the company you keep. It just takes a lot of exposition to get there. Uh, but if you liked the catch in its very brief ABC run, which actually stretched over two seasons, it just feels brief. Uh, there, there are things that might keep you watching here once you get to the second episode. Uh, Hello Tomorrow, definitely worth watching for Billy Crudup fans and for some of the retro-futuristic touches. Uh, and yeah, 12th Victim on Showtime. Interesting story, faulty execution, but interesting story. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. Those suckers do help spread the word of mouth. We uh, enjoyed seeing those of you wishing us a happy 200th episode in some of those comments. So we actually read them. Speaking of things that we read, if you want to come chat with us on Twitter, we are always there and always happy to hear from you. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. She's at Snoodit with two O's. Uh, if you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, you can It feels email. like we could probably do a mailbag next week, too. I think it is very possible. I You, you say that, and then that becomes the week that everybody announces everything. But you know what? L I'm going to go out on a limb and say we're going to do a mailbag next week. Wow. Okay. Well, if you have questions for this mailbag segment that Leslie just promised you on on burden of death or something to that effect, uh, I don't think it's contractually binding that we're going to do a mailbag segment. But if you want to, email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.